Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank moreno there are very few media personalities whose intellect energy and passion i admire more than dylan radigan i have followed dylan radigan in all of his media forms i still turn to his book which was a new york times bestseller by the way greedy bastards from time to time and look at something he said on capital markets or electoral reform I will listen to him on the radio. I've listened to his podcast. I would watch him on cable news. I now am reading his Substack like crazy. And every time I am exposed to Radiganism, I think to myself, how dumb am I that I didn't see that from the beginning? How did I not know that? How did I fail to put two and two together and have it equal four? But you're the beneficiary of my addiction to Radiganism because whether it's a tweet or whether it's what he's doing on Substack, I frequently will uh, plagiarize his analysis and then put it out to you on the radio as my own. Uh, but I thought you actually might deserve the genuine article. Joining us live from Europe, New York Times bestselling author, filmmaker, entrepreneur, and former cable news anchor, Dylan Radigan. Dylan, it is great to talk with you, my friend. It's been way too long. Wow, what an introduction, Frank. Uh, I, I'm honored and humbled. And yeah, it has been too long. And it, uh, thank God somebody's doing it because, as you know, I, my, the frequency of my public comment has diminished substantially compared to what it was 10 years ago. So I appreciate the fact that you're still out there every day fighting the good fight and trying to explain sometimes the unexplainable all of um a lot of folks listening may remember you from your time on uh, uh msnbc or bloomberg or on your time at uh, wabc in new york uh, a lot of folks are wondering what you're up to now now you're doing this great Substack, which uh, i've subscribed to and people can check it out they can just google dylan radigan Substack, or they can go to dylanradigan.substack.com and subscribe give us a quick update though i introduced you as an entrepreneur and a filmmaker what are you uh, what are you up to these these days primarily 
So I've been, I've, I've moved to, I've, my primary residence is now, as you mentioned, in Europe. I've been living in, in uh, northern Italy, in Milan, which is really the only place you can do business in this country, being Italy. Um, and my focus has been uh, on a few things. Uh, specifically, uh, we, I recently uh, completed a, a uh, government contract for a glove factory. Sorry. Uh, for a glove factory in the United States, which is still in the process of being built, we're in the process of bringing uh, fullerene light technology, which is a, a light structuring um, filter, a lens that alters the structure of light. Um, I'm working with the space materials business here in Italy, bringing them to the United States. I guess the easiest way to summarize it would be to say that I'm working with European technology and materials companies and helping them with their global growth strategy, both in the United States and in Asia, whether it's in space materials or industrial manufacturing or um, filtered light. Well, that, that's uh, that's great. Which I know it's peculiar because I but I, it's probably not an un, not an expected answer, but it's a way for me to learn and, and, and be part of the economy um, in a way that I don't get quite as uh, agitated as I did when I used to talk about the news every day. Yeah, no, uh, there were times where uh, that we were concerned that uh, you would actually burst a blood vessel in your forehead. You were getting, you'd get so, uh, so passionate. You and me both. <laughs> you and me both. Uh, Dylan, I don't know if you'll appreciate this comparison, but when you were on cable news, and even when you're on talk radio to some extent, uh, you struck me as really one of the more independent populist voices that there are. And a lot of people have used Use that same label to describe uh, Tucker Carlson in the aftermath of his departure from Fox. Certainly, he's much more of a right of center populist than I think most people viewed you as. But I'm curious, as someone that also never necessarily seemed to fit properly into the cable news media vortex, what were you, what was your take on Tucker Carlson's uh, departure from Fox News, and how do you think it goes for him? What do you think it portends for the future of cable news? Well, so two things. One, I, you know, there's something as you know, and it's a kind of a New York term. It's called the sucker's choice, which is when somebody gives you two bad choices and and, and pretends there's no other choice. And America has been stuck with a sucker's choice when it comes to politics for far too long. You know, do you want Trump or Biden? Well, hang on. What about the other hundred million more qualified, more interesting, younger human beings who might do a better job? Oh, they're not a choice. And I think that the entire political and cable news apparatus is a sucker's choice. And excuse me, I think that that is something that actually is played out, is manifested itself in the sense that. The audiences have fragmented and moved more and more away from cable news. Regarding Tucker Carlson, quite candidly, I have no idea. In other words, why, what, I don't know what, I have no idea why he left, why, why they fired him, I don't know. I think he'll be, I think if he chooses to stay as engaged as he was when he was hosting a show at Fox, which it sounds like he's going to do by virtue of the relationship with Twitter, I think it'll be tremendously successful. I think that people are trying to find some path to navigate the information, but it's almost impossible. You know, some people are better at trying to offer some perspective on it, but ultimately 
because of one, people don't believe the information as a general rule, any information anymore. And two, even if they do believe the information, the information they're given is so manipulated that people end up with incorrect beliefs. And so the, the, the entire exercise becomes a bunch of people arguing about things that they don't actually even know what they are. And so, the, 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 in other words, the actual um, the purpose of the interaction becomes about the fight, not about the information. With, with that in mind and what you've said about the sucker's choice that a lot of news consumers face with cable news, one of the things that I think is pretty exciting when it comes to media right now is this migration towards independent journalists, whether it's YouTube, whether it's podcasts, whether it's great newsletters like yours, whether it's just people on uh, Twitter tweeting different things. You really can find, if you're willing to put in the effort to look, a lot of great independent journalistic voices. Where does that leave these dinosaurs that are presenting American news consumers with this sucker's choice? Five, six, ten years they're, from they're now. They're just short timers. I mean, I listen, I totally agree with you, first of all. I think that it's a wonderful development. And if it wasn't for the subscriber fees at the cable news companies, if the cable news companies had to make money on their audience size, they would have been gone a long time ago. But because the subscriber fees, because the cable bundle and the, and the structure of the cable semi-monopoly or oligopoly has captured so much money and then allocated that money to those cable news companies, it created a massive distortion in the perceived relevance of the cable news industry and the people that work inside of it. Huge budgets, huge compensation packages all these aspects that have absolutely nothing to do with the actual audience sizes or relevance or skill of the people that are practicing it. And so as the cable subscriber bundle continues to to, to degrade and diminish to the extent to which it does, they will go away. In other words, if you took away the cable subscriber bundle, that, that will go away the next day because there really isn't a business there. Whereas these independent journalist platforms, whether it's, the Substack platform or whether it's YouTube or whether it's, you know, whether it's what Elon's going to try to do with Twitter. These are actual markets of actual information where people are actually only able to generate money, revenue. Right. People want to read the quality of their connection with their audience, not based on their ability to manipulate the structure of a, of a backroom deal to enrich themselves and then pretend that they're relevant. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Dylan Radigan. He is an authority on money, politics, uh, the media, and a whole lot more. You could subscribe to his Substack. You can go to Substack and just search Dylan Radigan, R-A-T-I-G-A-N, and then you can get uh, your his comments, his insight, his analysis, his perspective emailed right into your inbox. And I guarantee you, wherever you fall in the political spectrum, there will always be something in there that causes you to say, hmm, that's interesting and that's different. Let me ask you about the debt debate, uh, Dylan. The Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says we are just a few days away from a debt default. A lot of people were hoping that Congress would hammer out some sort of a deal before leaving town for Memorial Day. Do you think that we could actually see a default? What would that mean for the markets? And uh, where do you see that going politically? You know, I don't think we'll see a default. 
I think it's bad for the markets either way. I think it already is bad for the markets as of the last couple of days. It'll only get worse. And to the extent to which the politicians really press it, I think the markets will get worse. And I think that uh, ultimately they'll raise the debt ceiling and it'll only further elevate the total disdain that everybody in America has for all the politicians. And so for the politicians, they will, excuse me, continue to be uh, viewed as the biggest, um, I don't want to be profane, the the least respected, least appreciated, most detested group of human beings with power in America or anywhere because of an idiotic stunt like this. Um, And the markets will punish them for that. And the largely rigged or sort of sort of strong, I won't even say rigged, but the structured nature of how we select our politicians will ensure that most of them still won't lose their jobs even though 90% of the country would like to see different leadership. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. You've used the phrase from time to time, uh, hostage-taking politicians. Now, Matt Gates is referring to himself that way. He's saying that uh, he is ba- basically going to hold the whole process hostage until he gets what he wants. What does it say about the political structures in this country that someone like Matt Gates thinks that's an effective way to govern? I think it reflects what I just described. I mean, we've moved from, from we've moved away from what I was describing to be an, uh, being unspoken, which is that politicians are reviled and use hostage-taking techniques to get whatever they want. While the entire country suffers, people won't get paid. All these awful things. Markets are in decline. They don't care, et cetera. Just like a just like somebody who has hostages on an airplane doesn't care. Um, <laughs> we've just moved to the place now where they say it out loud. Because there's, they, we've just moved to the point where instead of pretending that there's a moral or honorable component, now they just say it out loud. Uh, you because get... they're so confident that they're not going to lose their jobs. Because they're so confident that they have the primary process and the sucker's choice between the two parties so firmly embedded that you can't do anything about it. Well, what do we do about that? And they're that? probably right. What, what, so assuming they are right, what do what can we do about that? Let's say we want to reform the political process so that those perverse yeah. incentives don't exist. What can be done? I mean, the only, the only sort of incremental change that I've seen have any relevance or success is the move towards ranked choice voting, mm-hmm. which at least has had some which at least eliminates the, the remember right now we so we imagine you're running a corporation and you're trying to select for Tesla's trying to select for engineers or uh, Microsoft is trying to select for developers or Ford Motor Company is trying to select for uh, designers or whatever it is. So they they go to design schools or they go to engineering schools. Or they, like there's a process when you're looking for labor or for staff or for executives where you target the types of people that go to the types of schools that for the thing that you want. And so for America, for politicians, the thing that we reward the most uh, is uh, character assassination, duplicity, and fundraising ability. 
and duplicity and character assassination are good fuel for some people's fundraising ability. And so what you have at the top of the American political system on the left and on the right is the best character assassins, the most duplicitous people, and the ones that are the best at raising money. And the value of character assassination is extremely high in a sucker's choice environment because it doesn't matter whether you like me or not as long as I can ensure that you absolutely hate the other choice. And ranked choice voting eliminates the value of character assassination in the voting process and flips the incentive for the politicians to need to win your vote as opposed to simply get your vote by default because they've done such a good job of destroying their opponent. The, um, so that's you, one example. You know, it's, it's a very frustrating situation, Frank. Yeah, no, a- amen. Uh, I, this uh, has given me a, a lot of gray hairs. You spoke uh, last Friday at Investopia Milan, a gathering of uh, European and UAE economic ministers. What did you talk about? Uh, we talked, well, the, the discussion specifically uh, as it was directed at me was around the perspective on the new rules of global trade. And what you saw when the war with Russia uh, broke between the United States and Russia, and, and it really, let's be clear, it is a war between the United States and Russia. I know that people like to think it's a war between Ukraine and and Russia, which is obviously uh, not correct. But when the war between the United States and Russia using the Ukrainian young men as um, cannon fodder broke out, then uh, you saw a complete restructuring in global trade. And so that's what I spoke about. And specifically what I said was, you're seeing massive beneficiaries because the ex- at the exact same moment that that war broke out, cities like or countries like UAE, Turkey, Thailand, Venezuela, Israel, um, the list goes on. But those are the ones that pop to my head right now. Were immediate massive beneficiaries. Mexico is another one. Um, insofar as they're not aligned in the war. They're able to do business both ways. And in Venezuela's case, now all of a sudden Venezuela becomes acceptable as an oil supplier for the United States after being unacceptable for God knows how long, only because of the political shift. But that, again, at least benefits some portion of that economy. And so the, 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 the new rules of global trade, as I just discussed it with the European and economic ministers, was you want to be in a position where you can do business with all countries, regardless of the politics, that the idea of trying to eliminate participation politically or financially because of politics is preposterous. And the example that I gave was India, which is clearly a U.S. ally. It's a member of the Quad with Australia and Japan and the United States. And at the same time, it's neutral in the U.S.-Russia war in Ukraine. And so... The politics prevent Russia from selling oil or diesel or any fuel into the into the European markets with some a few exceptions. But India can sell to Europe. And so India starts buying oil from Russia, refining it into diesel and then selling it back to Europe at, you know, three or four times markup. Right now you end up seeing. The Europeans get pounded financially 
for for the as a result of the Russia U.S. war, India does fantastic, and Russia still sells their oil. So the political agenda to isolate Russia fails. Right. India elevates, and the people that you are that the West is presumably trying to protect are damaged substantially by their protection efforts. Yeah. Now. Obviously, what you describe makes uh, perfect sense. When you see a conflict, the best thing to do if you want to have economic relations with either or both of those countries is to not pick a side. But there are people that look at the war between Russia and Ukraine or the proxy war between Russia and NATO, and they say, look, Russia is so egregiously in the wrong that even though we may make money trading with Russia and uh, purchasing oil from Russia or other goods from Russia, you, you have to repudiate international conduct that's so horrible. What do you say to that argument, uh, the moral aspect of foreign and economic policy? Yeah, I, I, I would just I would just say to the to, to the extent to which there's a moral compulsion to isolate a country because of their activities, that 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 moral compass should apply universally, not selectively. I think Chris Rock did a thing recently called selective outrage. Right, right. And well, this is a classic example of selective outrage, because one, there are many a country, the United States first among them, who have and continue to do lots of military excursions that kill lots and lots of people in a very immoral way with no consequence whatsoever, one. And two, I guess if you're going to get into morality, where do you stand on the morality of the the fact that the United States and NATO has betrayed every agreement with Russia going back to 1945 and certainly after 1989? And it's only as NATO has sought to expand to a thousand mile border I mean, imagine if Russia was trying to expand into Mexico. Oh, yeah. I mean, no. Look at how America re- responded in Cuba. So I also take issue with the moral sanctimony about what the Russians are or are not doing. Not that there may, there may be, I'm sure there are, horrendous activities in terms of citizens by the Russians in Ukraine. So are there horrendous historical activities of the killing of innocents by the United States and other nations, Saudi Arabia? comes to mind um so a war is horrible and so i would i would say what is the moral position for the country that continually provokes and seeks to uh in, in it's, uh, how do i want to say this um encircle russia with nato expecting that Russia is never going to respond. It would be no different than if Russia was trying to go into Canada and Mexico. You don't think the United States would respond? Yeah, I I certainly do. I think that the construct of this is as this, the the moral flaw in this discussion is that the characterization that the Russian attack is unprovoked, as if it was just some sort of spontaneous decision made one day because somebody... Right, he got up on the wrong side of the bed. Putin got up on the wrong side of the bed and decided to 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 invade his neighbor. Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. Uh, That's a lie from the news media, and that's a lie from anybody. That's just a straight lie. I'm not saying that Putin's response is admirable, per se. I'm saying you're on an inevitable path where you know if I I continue to poke a Rottweiler in the face with a hot poker over and over, over the course of time, 
and then eventually the Rottweiler attacks me. Is that an unprovoked attack from the Rottweiler? No, it, it's a perfect analogy. And whenever I've tried to make similar analogies on the radio, I have uh, folks rush to call me Neville Chamberlain saying I'm promoting appeasement. Oh, it's untenable. Or call me a, a Russian stooge. The, yeah. The propaganda, yeah. Yeah. The, prop, the propagandization, if that's even a word, in the United States among the media and among some portion of the population is stunning. It just speaks to the value of of a really ignorant population that you can create such a false belief that, it, that this is an unprovoked attack. Yeah, no, exactly right. Talking to Dylan Radigan, uh, check out his Substack. Just search Dylan Radigan on Substack. Dylan, before I let you go, you've spent a lot of time uh, co- covering the capital markets, commenting on the capital markets, and uh, you were the go-to guy during the financial crisis and the bailouts that followed One of the things that I brought to people's attention earlier was this uh, rather surprising study that's going to be published in a forthcoming European publication showing that financial traders that work from home as opposed to going into an office setting are much less likely to commit financial crimes and that folks don't really know why. Uh, Do you have any theory as to why that's the case, why traders that work from home might be a little less likely to cheat? Mm, I mean, this would be speculative. I haven't sure. thought about it, but I guess I, the two things that pop into my head are one, um, less of a of a FOMO sense because if you're if you're in a group, of, especially in the financial spec in a, in a financially specul a group of financial speculators, and some people among that group are making a huge amount of money, it creates a FOMO component where people have become more ambitious and, and reach, want to reach a little further to make as much money as Johnny or Sally or Polly or whoever's making money that day. So I think the fact that you're not so exposed to the personal experience of seeing someone else have a bunch of things, which, by the way, if you understand the arrival fallacy, even getting that money is an illusion in terms of its value. But that's a different – in terms of its value to happiness, I mean. I don't mean in terms of its value. Obviously, it has value in terms of its um, – contribution to your ability to pay for your bills. Um, but I would say one FOMO and then, and then two, maybe the, um, the lack of socialization or mm-hmm. the less socialization means that there's less of a, you know, that may, that if there's, that you're less likely to interact in a way that generates a new idea, but that basically the sort of the benefit of being together is collaboration, which has, which has incredible creative, positive value. But you also could be collaborating on financial crimes, which, you know, goes the other way. Lastly, so you Dylan, have less collaboration and less FOMO, I would say. Lastly, would be my- I mean, I think that's as good a theory as anything I've heard from anybody else. Yeah. You have been very active over the course of the last 10 years, probably before that, but the last 10 years that I'm aware of, in working with veterans in the private sector, in the charitable sector, helping get veterans get job opportunities, get job training opportunities. A lot of people are thinking about veterans because it's Memorial Day on Monday. As far as you can tell, Dylan, what is the biggest problem in this country with how we treat veterans? And what's a good first step in how we can turn things around and uh, be a little kinder to people that have served the country? Well, I would say two things. One, uh, much, much, much higher thresholds for engagement and conflict in general. So there's, there's mil- there are military veterans and then there are combat veterans. 
because they're which is they're really two different groups. Um, and the less com- the less gratuitous combat, the better off it, it is for the entire community. One, in terms of the actual process, the single biggest thing that you could change to help the veteran community is to get give them access and get access to them while they're still in the armed services. So you're much better to, if you're a veteran, you're much better while you're in a stable environment in the last, let's say six or three months of your um, time in the military to use that time to figure out what you're going to go to next, as opposed to coming out without knowing what you're going to go to next. And then having a empty space where you go home or you go wherever and then it adds, you know, and then there's a time gap there, and it's much more difficult to come from that time gap back onto something that is more stable and more reliable. So the more you can get upstream inside the armed services and access to our veterans while they're still in the armed services to give them access to, oper- whether it's educational opportunities, job opportunities, whatever it may be, that those opportunities need to be brought onto the bases and inside the armed services in the last six months or last three months of service and not wait until after they have left the military in order to engage them. That If we could do one thing, I could, that would be revolutionary. I, I love it. Of its value. It would be indeed. Dylan Radigan, it's always a treat. And uh, next time I'm in Italy, I'm going to look you up. Next time you're in New York, please join me in studio. It'll be my pleasure, Frank. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you. Uh, Dylan Radigan, please subscribe to his Substack, uh, 800-848-9222, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead.